You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh, Ben, it's been almost an unimaginably weird week in mixed martial arts, and in MMA, that's saying something, man, because we are used to a clown show around these parts. Someone is acting the fool here every day in this subculture. And so to look back on the last eight or nine days and say, this has been one of the weirdest times in this sport that I can recall is a kind of a lofty statement, man. But from Dana White slapping his wife in the face at a nightclub in Mexico to uh, the tragic death of Stefan Bonner to the Philip Baroni thing uh, to the also tragic passing of one championship fighter, Victoria Lee, who was only 18 years old. It has been a strange and depressing, frankly, time in this sport. And I guess I have to say on this show, we talk a lot about the stuff that goes on around the cage, right? I think we both find the business aspect of this sport and the lifestyle aspect of this sport fascinating. Frankly, there are a lot of other mixed martial arts shows out there that do a better job uh, doing technical fight analysis than we do. There's just people who know more about it than we do. We don't do a ton of that stuff on this show, but I will just say nobody And I mean, nobody gets into the mixed martial arts media world to talk about this shit, right? Like, even as a show that focuses a lot on the 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 outside the cage stuff, the the stuff that we have to talk about last week and this week primarily is not stuff that I look forward to talking to or or talking about or stuff that that uh, that I wish had to cross my mind a lot. But that's where we are here. Uh nine days into the new year. Yeah. It does feel especially lately. Like it's just harder to be an MMA fan in terms of the, the psychic load you kind of have to carry. There were times when it was hard to be an MMA fan because it was just hard to find this damn sport. And then there were times it was hard to be an MMA fan because once you found it, they were finding all these ways to nickel and dime you until you're spending, you know, a couple grand a year just to try to follow all the stuff you want to follow in the sport. This recent period has felt hard in the sense that it's going to continually make you ask yourself the question why you keep up with this stuff, why you keep willingly wanting to be a part of this world. And I I don't know if it's that anything really new has happened so much as some of the stuff that was regularly happening all seemed to happen at once and at a time when there was nothing really else going on in the MMA news cycle to distract us from that stuff. A lull in a major events. And so therefore we had a lot of time every day to be like, all right, who has committed domestic violence? Who is running cover for the person who committed domestic violence? Who may or may not be, uh, helping like renting out their spare bedroom to an ex-president who wants to plan a coup from afar all kinds of shit like that 
and you get to a point where you go like, okay, it feels like any news is going to be bad news because that's just the, the momentum, the sort of trend that we've been on. Yeah, and this weekend we have the first UFC event of 2023, a relatively low-profile fight night event where Nasordin Imovov and Kelvin Gastelum are in the main event. And I think you're right to say that the fact that all of this weird stuff happened essentially over the holiday season while we were in this otherwise fairly slow news time in the sport kind of amplified some of the news. I think Dana White slapping his wife in the face at a nightclub in Mexico always would have been pretty big news. But a lot yeah. of this other stuff uh, filled that void of having no fights to talk about in a uh, less than ideal and positive way. However, normally when you get a break like this in between UFC events and we get back to fight week and we're going to be talking about fights, it feels welcome, right? Like normal, the absence makes the heart grow fonder and you're like, man, I can't wait to get to these fights this weekend. And in a certain way, that's still true. It's been a while since we watched anyone strip to the waist and fight each other inside the UFC's octagon, and I am halfway excited to watch some of these fights coming up this weekend. But it also feels weird, man. It feels weird now that it is Monday, January 9th, and we're expected to just kind of turn the page and be like, all right, back to business as usual, diving back into the UFC's live event schedule. Here we go. And it's just sort of like, really? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to let some of this other stuff just kind of filter into the background and start doing a technical breakdown of Nasordin Imovov versus Kelvin Gastelum? Really? It feels weird, but okay. I mean, I can understand how for some people they feel like this is what I know. This yeah. is the, the fight week rhythm and the, the way to do this job that I know. And so therefore that is what I will cling to. And I can also understand to a certain extent how for some people who just follow this sport and they go, I want this sport to be a fun thing for me. This is a fandom for me. This is a thing I follow in my free time when I'm not thinking about my job or my other responsibilities in life. I want it to be fun. And damn it, it has not been a lot of fun recently. So bring me back to some of the stuff that that is why I started to get into it. That is why I started to follow it in the first place. I can understand that to a point. I guess where I stop being able to understand it is when people go, my need for this kind of fun means that I need you guys to not bum me out by telling me what's really going on. Like the, the world must reorganize itself so that I can enjoy this thing without having to be told anything about the thing. Yeah. And that that's that's where you lose me a little bit. But I can understand how we're going, hey, come Saturday night, I just want to relax, watch some fights, maybe have a couple few soda pops. I get that. I do. Yeah. I yeah. get I could also see how maybe those people are going and maybe some people at the UFC and ESPN are going, it'd be great if we had something a little more high octane than Gastelum. And then evolve. Like maybe we just if if ever there was a time when you needed to kick in the door with a Francis Ngannou fight or some shit like that, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have the yeah. big ass fight this weekend? Yeah, but no. Maybe the maybe the UFC is just gonna back the Brinks truck up in Francis Ngannou's Las Vegas driveway and just be like, "Look, man, we need to we need to change the narrative here, bud. Mm -hmm. We need to change the narrative, Bubba. How much of this money do you want? How about giving us a little good news to talk about?"
<laughs> Just a reminder, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right here, you need to check us out over on Patreon. At this point, Ben, we do so much damn Patreon content. It is hard to keep track of the narrative here on the proper because some weeks I'm like, what did we even talk about last week? It seems like a million years ago. And uh, like this week, for example, we're going to circle up, circle back and talk about a couple of things on the proper this week that we talked about on the Patreon content last week. So if you want to stay up to date with the co-main event podcast, you got to go sign up for the Patreon. We have basically content every day over there. We got Wednesday's live chat where we take 60 minutes worth of questions from you, the beloved patrons of the co-main event. We got Thursday's doing the damn thing podcast where we take a break from mixed martial arts and talk about stuff going on in the world and the entertainment community and everything else that is non MMA related. And of course on Friday, the power hour, an additional hour long curated MMA news show that features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings. We have a patronage tier for every budget. Go check us out at patreon.com slash co-main event and join the team over there. The people have fun. What can I say? They just have fun over there in the co-main event podcast, Patreon. Remember also, you want to pick up some co-main event podcast merch. You can do that over at our new merchandise shop. Head over to comainevent.com. Click the link at the top of the screen that says shop. And in there, you'll find old favorites like the original Dundasso t-shirt designs and the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes merch. You will also find a lot of cool new stuff like brand new. Are you fucking kidding me? Shirts officially licensed merchandise for the dreaded MMA gods. And of course, the hottest seller on the market, the Bobby Knuckles t-shirt. Just go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link that says shop. We're partnering with our friends from Superconductor on the shop. Uh, you've been seeing their work on the CME for a long time. Our longtime design collaborator, Johnny Ashcroft. We can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs. Hit them up over at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at studio super conductor we got music this week from our guy dennis fam self-described quote-unquote day one co-maniac from san diego uh that says he quote writes a song every few years he's got a single out right now called the fire you can find it on spotify and apple music and all other major music streaming platforms so we thank dennis fam for hooking us up with the music we're going to use this week on the show three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one now that it's clear that dana white won't suffer even the most minor consequence for slapping his wife in the face in public and on video at a nightclub on new year's eve We'll circle back for another look. How many people in MMA showed their ass during the last week? And in round number two, Jake Paul promises to substantively change the game for the PFL with his move to MMA. And honestly, it kind of seems like maybe he didn't have any other choice. And in round number three, the UFC kicks off its 2023 live schedule with... Nassar Deem Imavov versus Kelvin Gastelum. Yes, you heard that correctly. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Tim Donovan, who writes, So, Jose Aldo is harboring Yar Bolsonaro in his Florida home? Why, Jose? You were one of the okay ones. After Brazil's rerun of the U.S.'s January 6th insurrection on January 8th, this is even more timely and concerning. MMA stays emblematic of maybe all the worst things in the world, and we're only a week into the year. Now, like I said, man, we're going to go through this listener mail this week, and most of it is about stuff just flatly not positive. Just not, yeah. you can't really put lipstick on this pig, man. Like this, it's just stuff that we would probably rather not talk about. And here you go with Jose Aldo hosting deposed Brazilian president Yar Bolsonaro at his home in Florida. And you know what, Ben, we have known for a long time that a lot of the Brazilian MMA fighters seem to skew toward the right and that a lot of them uh, have been vocal and out about their support of Bolsonaro over the years. But like you said at the top of the show, having the guy come to your house and stay there, oh, by the way, while there is also a January 6th style insurrection where Bolsonaro's supporters are storming government buildings and attacking reporters in the streets of Brazil, this takes it to an additional level. And it does suck that the person on the end of it the person responsible for it is MMA great and largely beloved figure, Jose Aldo. Yeah. One of the things that always comes to mind when something like this happens is I realize there are going to be a whole bunch of people out there who the first they ever hear of there's a guy named Jose Aldo is going to be a story like this. Where they're going to be like, hey, did you know ousted Brazilian president Yair Bolsonaro is hanging out in the U.S. And people go, what? That's kind of weird. And they go, yeah. He's staying at the home of a Brazilian fighter who lives in Florida. It's this guy. And there's a MMA fan part of me that wants to go, but wait, he's Jose Alto, man. He's former UFC, WEC champion, one of the greats, one of the best to ever do it in his weight class, had a great long career, which he only recently told us that he believes is done. We always know what to do with those kind of fighter retirement things. But still, then they're going to run a news story that says, Yair Bolsonaro is at Jose Aldo's house. And oh, by the way, Jose just happens to have one of his spare bedrooms in his house as a minion's room. As in the minions, the little yellow minions, Chad, from yeah. Despicable Me. Well, I'm familiar with the minions. And it's and then that's when I go, okay, I'm sorry. I can't. I wanted to help here. I wanted to be the person to be like, no, you guys, there's more. Jose Aldo is more than just the a weird person involved in this weird story. But then when you throw in the minions room. I that's when I got to bow out because I can't. I, what can I tell you about the minions room? I don't fucking know. It's that that is here are two different types of weird shit that an MMA fighter would do. One, as 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 this question puts it, harbor an ousted president who may or may not just be posted up in one of your spare rooms planning a coup from afar. You're just like, hey, I made some quesadillas, uh, going to have some soup on. I don't know if you want to hop in here and have some lunch with us real quick. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I just I got I got to take care of this thing real quick. I'll, let me finish up this call and I'll be right there. Uh, I have lunch with you guys. And the thing he's taking care of is planning a coup 
back in his home country. I mean, that's that's a great way to be a footnote to history. But then also having a minions room in his home is some shit that an MMA fighter would do. Yeah. You know? No, yeah. And I, don't, I don't know what to say to anybody about that. Like, Well, what you say is, sure, Jose Aldo may be trying to help install a fascist dictator in his home country, but have you seen this sweet video of him knocking out Cub Swanson with a double flying knee in the WEC? Right? That's what you yeah. said. Yeah. Or here's uh, that awesome video of Jose Aldo going and buying his first suit once he finally got paid right in, in MMA. You know, hey, look, it was an adorable moment and everything. Uh, maybe let's focus on that and not the whole putting up the, the would-be dictator in his minions room. And yet, again, like we've talked about how MMA fighters have a gift for gravitating toward whoever is in the news for all the wrong reasons. And it's like, you know, maybe some other people have Jair Bolsonaro calls him up and be like, hey, I got to get out of here and let the heat die down a little bit. I just want to kick back, relax. You have a spare bedroom and Jose going to be like, by all means, come on to the minions room, man. Handle the shady business of your life from there. Yeah. I'll take you out to eat at an IHOP. I have to shout out Tim Donovan, the author of this email, for the phrase, MMA stays emblematic of maybe all the worst things in the world. That is just an incredible turn of phrase. But, well, we but, managed but, to have but, our but, tentacles in all the worst things. Sure. But wait, it gets worse. A report out today, ex-UFC champ Jose Aldo is also involved in a government handout scandal, including taking funds designed for low-income families during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is a tweet from Kareem Zidane that I just read for you. There's a story over on Bloody Elbow by Lucas Resende. Uh, Jose Aldo and his wife are involved in a government handout scandal, basically taking money out of various funds for taking them for yourself. And uh, Jose Aldo's wife blames, quote-unquote, snooping leftists. For this news. So, wait, so she's not saying that it's not true. She's just blaming the snooping leftists for figuring out that it's true. Yeah. I saw someone on Twitter post the Scooby Doo meme where Jose Aldo's wife is like, we would have got away with it too if it wasn't for you snooping leftists. So, just, I mean, that not, it's not good news. It's just not good news. But you also got to admit, uh, being involved in a government handout scandal. Also some shit that an MMA fighter would do. And in yeah. fact, ask Tito Ortiz what he was up to when they were giving out money here in the, during the pandemic. Or as he would have you believe, the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, next email this week comes to us from uh, Mike Melsky, who I believe is a television character. Okay. Uh, we always like to hear from fictional characters. So let's say that hypothetically I know my way around an illegal stream. With UFC leadership proving to be even viler than we thought and the exploit of UFC business model chugging along unimpeded, what if I just paid fighters directly for pay-per-views? It's a Patreon, GoFundMe, Venmo world. $2 for fighters in the curtain jerker going up by $2 increments per fight, selling at $10 for each headliner, $60 total. Might, might it be possible for all of us to embark on some 21st century boycott where we both keep enjoying the product and don't support the underlying business? Uh, 
This is a, a concept that, that we have talked about before, has been aired to the podcast before. And frankly, I think it's an incredibly good idea. And I wish that there were like a, uh, an established platform to do it. Somebody out there looking to make an MMA, we pay the fighters directly website. This is your chance. Because I think, you know, it, it ain't a bad idea. Now, the, the question is, can you get build it up to the point, I guess, where it would be a meaningful revenue stream for MMA fighters. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that one of these other secondary MMA organizations hasn't jumped on this idea yet, uh, where you basically have an a la carte service where you can choose where your money goes, which, uh, hey, man, I think I speak for us all in this sport where we say there are times where we frequently wish we could choose where our money goes. Yeah. Okay. Couple things about that. For one, Mike Melsky is the neighbor on Joe Para talks with you. So glad we got to the bottom of that. Second, it would be hard for an organization to do it because the question we would very quickly ask is, "Wait a minute, bro! If you think the fighters deserve more money, why don't you pay them? You're that's supposed to be your job, right? Is you're the promoter who takes in money from the fans and pays money to the fighters. If you think that they're not being paid enough, pay them more. So tricky for a promoter." I think the thing that a lot of people are doing is telling themselves, hey, UFC leadership, even viler than we thought, as Mike Melsky puts it here, don't want to support them, so I'll watch the illegal stream. And then if you gave them the option to instead redirect that money toward individual fighters, they would be like, hmm, I was actually kind of enjoying not paying any money for it, so maybe I won't do that. I, I'm i not saying it's a bad idea to set up some kind of thing, but also... Are we, we're then just, we're tipping them, right? We're we're basically sitting at the lineup around the stage at the strip club tipping them when we think they have a good performance or something, which we've already talked about how sometimes the parallels between sex work and combat sports are pretty strong. And then we're, we're basically at a old-time smoker throwing silver dollars into the ring when we see a fight that we like. Now... I'm sure the fighters would be happy to go around, pick up those silver dollars, throw them in the spit bucket and count them up later. But it also, it gets a little bit weird at that point. And don't you think the first thing we would think, knowing how this sport works, is somebody who's like, hey, I've set up this system of donations where you can just send, you know, some Venmo money here that tell us which fighter you want it to go to after their performance here tonight. We will send it on to them. We will go, okay, I guess I'll wait. For three months until we find out that you haven't paid anybody and that you just kept all the money. Um, so there's another obstacle from it. Also, though, I am reminded of the crypto fan bonus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's, this seems more straightforward than that, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, if you're here's paying the them in where, real money and not like money that has to have a sales pitch come along with it. And also, I guess this is as good a time as any to ask. Wither the crypto fan bonus, because that shit did not last long at all, bro. Yeah, that it was a very short-lived thing where it was like, hey, as part of our deal with Crypto.com, we're doing the crypto fan bonus. You get to vote on it each time. We'll give our money. And then it just seemed like it very quietly went away. We still see the crypto logos places around. It seemed like the UFC got their money out of it. But the whole fan bonus thing where you get to decide who gets this money that that just evaporated and they don't even talk about it anymore. That's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah, unlined unlike actual crypto, it seems like crypto.com must have paid the UFC up front. 
mm-hmm. right? In actual money, because those crypto in US currency are, are still up there. Uh, next question this week is from Lukey, the podcaster. He asks us about Phil Baroni. He says, I'm sure you heard the news. What the fuck? And are we going to ignore the long lasting impacts of trauma that comes with MMA? It feels like many of our legends of this sport of yesteryear, the ones we romanticize, are suffering from CTE and it is uh, being regarded as kooky or funny until something very bad happens. Thoughts? Uh, obviously, I can't even remember if we talked about this on this show yet, but Phil Baroni arrested in Mexico for allegedly beating his girlfriend to death in what is a terribly ugly and horrifying story. And we talked about this, I know, on the Power Hour last week. But again, like you kind of brought up the point, and I think it's a good one. MMA is still young enough that we are just now starting to grapple with what an aging MMA fighter looks like and what happens to these people and the kind of physical toll that some of them pay for their careers in mixed martial arts. And frankly, especially from these guys that came up in what I guess we would call the MMA pioneer days now and what was kind of a a hard hitting blood and guts era where there was a lot of hard sparring and practice and people weren't totally sure how to train for this sport. We're starting to see a lot of these people suffering, lasting detrimental effects from their MMA careers. And unfortunately, even the famous ones aren't coming out of it with as much money as like a famous athlete in almost any other sport. So it's a multifaceted problem. And you hope that the way people are training now and some of the more uh, studied approaches to MMA that we're starting to see around the sport can pave the way for better fortunes for the the athlete of today. But I agree, it's incredibly sad to see some of these other guys suffer from the lasting effects of their their careers in MMA. And whether or not that's Phil Baroni, we don't totally know. Uh, but it seems like he is at least accused of committing a horrific crime. And, uh, you know, like I said, this past week, we've had a bunch of stories like this, and you only hope that they don't become more and more common as like we move into the future. Yeah. And I kind of hate the trend that happens whenever an MMA fighter is accused of a crime, especially, you know, a horrific one like this. Or if they just pop off and say something dumb on social media, anything within that spectrum, people, there will be somebody who comes along and is like, CTE, bro, you got, this is CTE, you got CTE. And it's like, first of all, that's some serious shit that I don't know if we want to just be throwing around casually. Also, it's the kind of thing that you we're not going to know. Even, I mean, I I believe that Josh Barnett was trying to be very uh, serious and and sincere when he was talking about how he felt like dealing with Phil Baroni, he had noticed increasingly erratic behavior and was chalking that up to CTE. But you're just not going to be able to know that about everybody. Plenty of people just get sort of more erratic as they age and plenty of people commit horrific crimes without there being an actual change in like brain matter stuff going on with them. So it's not like that's the only possible reason that we're dealing with that. But I do think there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that we're not prepared for. And I think there's going to be a range of it. And it's not just going to be, you know, somebody showing signs like perhaps of brain damage, perhaps of diminished impulse control. I think there's like a lot of people, we focus on brain stuff because that's sort of been in the news for so long when it comes to contact sports like boxing and football and things like that. But I think there's going to be a whole lot of people who are dealing with other stuff like joint stuff, hips, spines, shoulders, things like that, that 
then they're going to end up in a situation where they didn't make enough money from MMA that they can afford great healthcare going on. They didn't ever make NFL money. There is no sort of ongoing care for those people. Not nothing even close to what the NFL offers people who are, you know, even if those people just stay on a roster for a few seasons, they get now MMA offers you none of that and it can do a ton of damage to you. And so how many people in their mid fifties or early sixties are we going to see who are just broken down, don't have the ability to, to get health care, to pay for health care, to get reliable health insurance. That's going to be tough to see, man. And that's, I think like there ought to be a reckoning with how we allowed that to happen when the people who put on the fights are still making money off of some of those fights and are making a shit ton of money, just swimming in profits more and more every year. And there's no, nothing set aside for these people who broke their bodies on the wheel to make this happen for you. Yeah. All right. We are going to close out listener mail with a more positive and uplifting one from Mitch Davies who wrote, Keith Lee is absolutely killing it at the TikTok right now. It's awesome to see him give back to the community and support his family financially without fighting, all while he works on his social anxiety issues in front of the world. Seems like a dope dude. Of course, Keith Lee is the brother of former UFC fighter Kevin Lee, and he has become, we are led to believe now, I have not actually seen any of this content because I am not on TikTok, but he has become an influential food critic he is making he started out making videos just for his family and of his family essentially like cooking food for his wife while she was pregnant says he started doing a lot of tiktok content to try to help himself get better at interviews when he was fighting for bellator uh he was released by bellator in late 2021 and since then he has built up this tiktok following eventually kind of evolving into doing food reviews from restaurants he has seven million tiktok followers at this point ben according to the mma fighting story that i looked at about this guy uh written by the way by damon martin he is considered quote one of the more influential food critics in the world now we would have to fact check that claim. I don't know about that, but this is pretty cool, man, to see a former Bellator guy, brother of Kevin Lee, Keith Lee, become a quote unquote influential food critic on TikTok. That's amazing. Yeah, that's great. I also feel like whenever you tell me about what's going on on TikTok, I go, okay, sure. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, we actually need, we probably need a correspondent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, someone half our age. Someone who we're old enough to be their dads that we can just go to. We can be like, okay, here we're going to go now to our Gen Z correspondent, yeah. uh, McKinley Jackson, which is spelled <laughs> just M-I-C-K-I-N-L-E-E-E-E-E. I-G-H. Yeah. Uh, and just describe various TikToks to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the way I feel about TikTok, I saw a comedian describe it this way, like an old comedian around our age who was like, you know what? When I hear about people doing good stuff on TikTok and everything, and I go, I, I feel like the old person who is just sitting it out from the edge of the room and being like, you guys go have fun. Yeah. That's how I feel about TikTok. You, you know, I hope you guys are having a good time over there, being nice to each other and, and you know, chopping it up. Uh, but I'm not going to. It's too late for me. I'm not going to get on, on board with that. But, uh, you know, let me know when something notable happens. Sure. McKinley. Explain these ticky talkies for grandpa folks and grandpa <laughs> Dundas. 
That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comadeevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, like we said at the top of the show, it's fight week this week, and it's hard not to get the impression that much of the MMA world wants desperately to move on from Dana White slapping his wife in the face in public on video in a nightclub in Mexico on New Year's Eve. It's kind of sad to say that, I guess, but that's how it feels. And at this point, we have zero evidence to suggest that Dana White will suffer any kind of consequence at all for slapping his wife in the face in public and on video in a nightclub in Mexico on New Year's Eve. The UFC parent company Endeavor has officially declined to comment on the situation. Many MMA fighters have completely expectedly come out and said the worst possible things about the situation. The MMA media has been largely silent. Uh, I guess we find ourselves, frankly, at the outcome that we all anticipated, but it still somehow, at least to me, feels very sad. How do you feel about it? Yeah, it, what's interesting to me is how, for one thing, it feels like this has been We've been in the spin cycle of this story for a while now, and really, it's this is just now a week. It was a week ago today that it happened, and, and it feels much longer. And, you know, you're especially reminded of that when there are people being like, oh, God, they're still talking about this. It was seven days ago. And I guess one of the things that's interesting to me is how the story has moved from being about the thing that actually happened to then being about other people's response to the thing that happened to then being about, so nothing is going to happen as a result of that thing, huh? Okay. And that, I I think it's weird that this has ended up being sort of a referendum on the media and on the people who protect powerful people and don't, and refuse to hold them to account. And instead of it being about the thing, but I, maybe part of that is because, when Dana White was given this, again, very kind and generous and very gentle platform to ease his way into being the first to explain this event as it was being shown to us on TMZ, they were really trying to offer him a whole bunch of excuses. And yeah. to his credit, he did not take them. And he said, there's no excuse and people are going to say a bunch of bad stuff about me as a result of this. And they're going to be right to say a bunch of bad stuff. And a whole bunch of people jumped in there afterwards being like, I would like to offer some excuses for you, please. Even after he said he wouldn't do it himself. And so maybe he sort of heads off a little bit of that. But then you have all these other people rushing to fill in that void with their own terrible takes. In the case of somebody like Kevin Aioli at Yahoo, where he decided, you know what the thing for me to do is to go out there and point out all the good he's done and 
to really walk right up to the line of saying he works so hard. He's under so much stress and pressure that that's where this came from. Even suggest he's under so much pressure, Chad, trying to build a new combat sport when what he means is the slapping. He means the fucking slapping, bro. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have all you have these reactions too, where it's just like from ESPN when somebody reaches out to the ESPN and say, "Did you guys have any comment on this?" And their comment is basically, "Hey, we just show this shit. We are not involved in this stuff," which feels very different from the reaction they would have if this were another sport. And right. as you pointed out, and I think you're right about this, it's sort of ex- like a little bit. Of, of exposing their thoughts on MMA as, hey, we're in this as a cash grab. This is a money thing for us. We only show this shit because we figure we can make money off of it and people are going to watch it. Um, we don't necessarily view it. It's not the NFL. We don't view it the same way we view the for real sports. We're just showing it, man. They produce all the content and everything, and we just put it on TV. We're just the distribution platform, which, A, you have put yourself in kind of a tough spot then because people who work for ESPN, like Brett Okamoto, have shown up on UFC broadcasts. Are you saying when they do that that they're not working for you? That they are just UFC employees at that point? Because you kind of put them in a tough spot if that's the case. Um, But it also tells us like, hey, when we're watching, you know, the NFL on ESPN, we're watching an ESPN production. But when we're watching the UFC on ESPN, completely different thing we're watching the ufc's infomercial basically that you guys are airing because there's money in it for you like i don't know if that's something you really want to want to stick with long term and yet now you kind of have to because you put yourself in that situation but again i mean you had a whole bunch of espn people not really wanting to say too much about this yeah and Uh, you can imagine it would be different if this was an nfl figure yeah that actually brings up something that i wanted to talk about and i did want to point out how a couple of ESPN's top on-air personalities, namely Amina Kimes and Sarah Spain, responded to the Dana White situation. And I'm going to preface this by saying Amina Kimes and Sarah Spain are two people whose work that I like a lot. I generally think that they do a great job on TV, and they are generally two outspoken figures at ESPN, and I respect and admire the stuff that they do. But I want to read these two tweets from them. Mina Kimes posted this on January 6th, and this was after I believe she had been on Around the Horn, uh, and I don't, didn't see the show, so I don't know what happened. But she gets a tweet about it, and her response is, there's been a lot of tweets about this. To be transparent, I didn't have time to dig into this story this week because of the NFL news and didn't want to say anything until I had dug in. But having read the coverage, watched the video, etc., it's obviously very ugly stuff. So then two days later, on January 8th, Sarah Spain is asked about it, a tweet that says, hey, Sarah Spain, why the silence on the Dana White issue? And she says, been on a break and haven't read up on it, so don't want to comment without being educated. Only been tweeting sporadically about positive stuff. This place is super toxic, and this new year feels like after I take a long vacation, I want to limit my time on Twitter and stay out of the slop. That's there. Those are the two takes there. Now, we had also had Jeff Wagenheim post a tweet that basically said or implied that ESPN people had been told not to say anything incendiary about Dana White. He later came back and updated that to say they weren't told anything specifically about Dana White, but it's just sort of part of the overall ESPN media policy, let's say. Now, I don't necessarily know if I believe that ESPN 
told its people not to talk about Dana White. I kind of don't. I kind of don't think that ESPN sound, sent out a company-wide edict not to talk about Dana White, because frankly, that would be different than how they've covered a lot of other uh, ugly MMA stories, right? Conor McGregor, for example, they covered a, a fair amount. Uh, but I think these two responses from Mina Kimes and Sarah Spain point out something a little bit different, but I would say like arguably just as influential. And that is that like the UFC gets to enjoy all of the trappings of being mainstream, right? Like it, it makes a ton of money for its owners. It's on ESPN plus it's largely accepted at this point as like a sport that we have in America. And yet most of the top sports journalists in America don't know or care about it at all. Yeah. Not at all. They probably find it distasteful. They don't want to be part of it. They don't want to follow it. They don't want to watch it, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result of that, you have Mina Kimes and Sarah Spain both coming out a week after the Dana White incident, both of them admitting in their tweets that they had not watched the video. The video takes five seconds to watch. That's essentially yeah, and how long it is. if you're on Twitter at all, it's kind of unavoidable, I would think, at some point. It's difficult to imagine any other person in sports, comparable person in sports, that could have slapped their wife in the face at a nightclub in public and on video. And you would have people like Mina Kimes and Sarah Spain saying, I haven't seen it. Can you imagine if it was Jerry Jones or yeah. the NHL commissioner? Or, you know, anybody in a sport that they don't really follow, but they slap their wife in the face in public on video in a nightclub and these people and, haven't seen it. And the end and result of that, would you feel like you needed like to read up right. on that situation? That's, if you, that's if completely you saw that different. Video. Like you don't have to dig in. You just have to watch the video. It takes five seconds. But I don't even really mean this as a critique of Mina Kimes and Sarah Spain. I'm just saying the UFC in, enjoys what is almost a unique position in sports, where as a company, it is this mainstream thing that makes a billion dollars a year. And yet none of the actual sports commentators know anything about it or care anything about it or want to talk about it at all. And so as a result... It never gets held accountable for its terrible yeah. business practices, for the horrible personal stuff that goes on, because they just don't know. It's like not even on their radar. It's a week later, and they're like, I haven't seen the video. Like, come on, man. Like, well, the and UFC and Dana White both just get to skate, because we're not talking about this anywhere except for on shows like this. Well, and... Don't you think that also part of it is because, as we also talked about on our Patreon stuff last week... That maybe they think, okay, you, oh, so you're telling me the cage fighting president maybe hits his wife? Like, that's kind of what I assumed was going on. Like, I, I didn't expect anything better from them. It's not like they're a huge mainstream sport that where I would expect the owners to behave better or anything like that. Um, I assumed cage fighting people were doing this kind of bullshit all the time. I, I'm sure that for some of those people, that's the way they view it as like, this is not a serious sport. This is a ridiculous one. And so it has ridiculous people in it. And I'm not surprised to learn this kind of thing. I also wanted to point out something like this, where uh, this is from Bloody Elbow, where they had um, this from uh, D.L. Hughley, who wrote, what can Brown do for you? Apparently not a damn thing. If that had been a brother, meaning instead of a white man and Dana White, it'd be nonstop coverage, dredging up a playground fight from the third grade, scouring old tweets, you name it. Hashtag Dana White's entire life is immersed in brutal physical violence. He's amassed a fortune from it. Where are the salacious headlines? Where's the pressure? Oh, he apologized. Hashtag white privilege. 
pun intended, scores a first-round knockout yet again, to which Jamie Foxx replies, fucking preach. Now, this, I think, is absolutely true. Can you imagine, just imagine for a second, that in, in, everything else about this situation is the same, except it's Francis Ngannou slapping his wife in public? I bet you then there's a whole lot of people who don't feel like they need so much context on it to know what to make of it. I, I bet there's a whole lot of people who it's Stephen A. Smith is not talking about how he reached out to Francis that very morning to talk to him, to alert him that we were going to be talking about this. Kevin Eoli is not writing an article about all the good Francis Ngannou does in his home country of Cameroon uh, and charity work and shit. We're not doing any of that shit. It's just we're, we're pitchforks and torches are out and we're coming after him in that situation with Dana White. It's a different situation. I, I'm sure the racial aspect is part of it, but also that a lot of people are like, well, Dana White is a rich and powerful man who's also known to be vindictive if you get on the wrong side of him. And I'd like to stay on the good money making side of it. And that's yeah. the calculation a whole lot of people are making. And they're making it in full public view to the point where the story is becoming increasingly about them and their willingness to provide cover than it is about the original thing that happened. You look at the story, the New York Times story that came out uh, late last week. It was more about that. All these people who are not saying anything, who are being very conspicuously quiet about it, um, just because, you know, we want everybody to stay friends and everybody make money. Yeah. And it's probably no accident that most of them, uh, you know, most pointed criticism has come from outside the MMA world. As you mentioned, D.L. Hughley and Jamie Foxx there and Kyle Kuzma from the NA, uh, NBA has tweeted some stuff about this. And frankly, maybe it's not the only one, but the most high profile fighter that we've seen come out and say anything that seems even remotely critical is Dustin Poirier, which shout out to him for, uh, you know, saying that you should not hit a woman, which seems like a very low bar to have to clear yeah. for praise in this sport. But again, Dustin Poirier, one of the people that we can mostly rely on in this sport for being a level-headed good person. And he does that here and, you know, says uh, that he basically can't, doesn't know what should happen, but can't imagine how you could think of this as a, as a, you know, a, a proper thing to do, which again, props to Dustin Poirier for being that guy in the MMA space where it seems like it would be easy to do that, but hasn't necessarily, proven to be the case yeah uh, a low bar been, to clear that everybody else is tripping the fuck over <laughs> there has been no talk really about like data white potentially losing his job for example like uh i assume he may not come to this low profile fight night event on saturday but i assume that before too long he will be back and he will come to the press conference and roll out to the microphone and tell us the live gate and the attendance and everything else. And people will ask him questions about the fights and he will give the same answers that he's been given for 15 years. And then we will go on and it will just continue like that until he decides to walk away on his own terms. But honestly, man, I know I'm different than a lot of people in this, in this subculture, but I can't imagine how this guy comes back to work. Even still, like, I guess I am of the controversial opinion that if you commit an ugly act of domestic violence in public, you should not retain, you know, what is the enormous privilege of your like eight figure salary and position as the public face of a multi-billion dollar company. But like, maybe I'm old fashioned. I don't know, but that's just what I think. But it's just like, I'm, I'll think about Dana White as the guy who slapped his wife in, fa in the face in public at a nightclub on video in Mexico on New Year's Eve. Every time I see him for the rest of his life, like that's just how I'm going to, that's how my brain works. Maybe it's not the same as everybody else's. Well, and it's not even just that he's not going to 
lose his job with as president of the UFC. He's got a slap show that was supposed to premiere this week, and it's just delayed until next week. Still going to be Dana White's Power Slap League. The irony too thick, apparently, for us to, to even notice it at this point. And far from suffering any consequences as the UFC president, not even going to suffer any consequences as the guy behind the already extremely dumb Slap League. And that's the part where it gets me. I, I heard Ariel Hawani talking about this, I think, earlier today, where he was saying, like, the idea that a lot of people have that you can't run this thing without Dana White. That, you know, it seems like a lot of these people, at least part of their calculation seems to be, well, we obviously can't remove Dana White because we want the UFC to keep making all this money for us. And he's a key piece. If you take him out, maybe you fuck with the money and we don't want to do that. And honestly, one of the things we've learned about the UFC in the last few years is that it is a machine that kind of runs itself at this point because it has yeah. such a, a seasoned staff behind it and, and so many people working hard to the point of working insane hours at times for the UFC. Dana White does not even really seem that interested in the UFC anymore. Yeah, it seems like he has had one foot out the door for like about five years. And the notion that you couldn't run the thing without him hasn't been true for a decade, at least. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, like, I wouldn't even be surprised if he doesn't stay that much longer. Like, you know, he's not going to get fired. He will leave on his own terms. But I've felt for a while, like, okay, he's planning his exit strategy. And, like, maybe the slap fight league, as dumb as it is, was part of that. And now uh, I still think it. I still think, like, he probably won't be along, be around that much longer. He's going to... He's going to phase himself out of this thing because just because he's seemed like he's been trying to do it for five years. Yeah. All right. Let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? I feel like this whole show is an are you fucking kidding me so far, but let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Benil Dariush, he seems upset. That Cool Dusty P, the aforementioned Cool Dusty P, is not that interested in the possibility of a fight with him. This is a quote here from Benil Dariush. He says, I wish he, meaning Justin Poirier, would be a little bit more clear as to what it is that doesn't excite him about me. Are my fights not exciting enough, or is it a skill issue? Or is it just because I don't have the name? Because if it's just because of the name, he should really consider, and I say this as nicely as possible, I'm not trying to be a dick, but he should really consider retiring. Because if you're going to look for the names, if you're going to look to fight only guys that, that the name will get you, bro, there's dogs coming. There's dogs and they're young and they're hungry. They're looking to kill. Now, Chad, that is 33-year-old Benil Dariush warning 33-year-old Dustin Poirier about these young dogs out here. So I guess I just kind of have to ask, are you fucking kidding me? We're going to act like uh, Dustin Poirier doesn't know that there are some hitters out here. Because for one thing, I'm going to tell you, Dustin Poirier fought Michael Chandler, Charles Oliveira, Conor McGregor back-to-back -back fights, Dan Hooker, Habib Nurmagomedov, Max Holloway, Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje, Anthony Pettis, and then again, Eddie Alvarez, and before that, Jim Miller. He knows a little something about the dogs out there, man. He knows a little something about it. But also, my real are you fucking kidding me is... Eh, I understand the not trying to be a dick. I just think he should quit if he is not willing to do the thing that would benefit me personally. Are you fucking kidding me? You don't hear yourself there? 
Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That is a no disrespect meant but yeah. moment if I ever heard mm-hmm. one. All due uh, respect, but go fuck your mother. I don't even know if we have talked about this on the show, Ben, but it seems like it's been a week or two since Andrew Tate was arrested in Romania for uh, on the heels of making a video about Greta Thunberg that alerted police to his whereabouts so that they could go arrest him. And I guess my are you fucking kidding me this week is just that Andrew Tate was arrested for suspicion of human trafficking and sexual assault when basically for years now, his persona online has been that he is involved in human trafficking. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is a guy whose whole shtick on the internet was, I make women fall in love with me, and then I take them to a house and make them do sex shows on the internet. Like, that, he says that out loud in public. And now we're going to be surprised when he gets arrested for human trafficking? He just, he confessed, basically. Are you fucking kidding me? I gotta tell you, man, this Andrew Tate news cycle, especially since it's so closely linked with the MMA community who loves to, you know, pal up with the the worst person in the news at any given moment, it's really challenged my Andrew Tate stance, which was don't know nothing, don't want to know nothing about this yeah. person. Every like people used to say about the Kardashians, everything I've learned about this guy, I've learned against my will, and I hate it. I mean, if you want to have a good laugh, go check out the guy's website where he is basically running a scam where he says, if you want to be rich, send me a bunch of money and I will tell you the secret of how you get rich. Ah, some 1940s carnival shit, bro. That's like <laughs> the secret pay me a to nickel and come a bunch inside of the fortune teller. Yeah. Yeah. You know how you get rich? You take money from people who want to be rich. That's, yeah. that's how you do it. Anyway, a guy who said that he's involved in human trafficking later arrested for human trafficking. You fucking kidding me? All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad... The person in the combat sports world who seemed like he would have been most at home as one of the side characters in Glass Onion, Jake Paul, is headed to PFL, and he is now going to be an MMA fighter. Now, we discussed this a little bit last week when the news broke, and to me, this seems like one of those moves that works out pretty well for both sides, Um, but that also seems like maybe for Jake Paul... A little bit of a distillation of what we had said before was the lesson that maybe he seemed to be learning from some of these diminishing returns in his boxing pay-per-views, which is that the Jake Paul shtick, for whatever reason, works best on us, the MMA people. Works way better on us than it does on boxing people, or on just sports people in general, or just on those who are up to be socially influenced by various social influencers. We turned out to be the target audience for Jake Paul, even though we hated it. And kind of seems like he has learned that, and that he goes, you know what? This is where I will focus my my next move in the world of MMA and with the PFL, which happens to be in a situation right now where they could really use themselves a little bit of a Jake Paul nudge. 
Yeah, and frankly, we talked about this on Friday on the Power Hour, like you mentioned, and we got to shout out our guy Brendan on the Discord, longtime supporter of the CME, uh, for for pointing out to us that like perhaps Jake Paul didn't really have any other choice but to make this move to MMA. You pointed out on Friday that you thought it was well-timed. Uh, Brendan points out that the Anderson Silva-Jake Paul boxing match pay-per-view uh, did much worse in terms of pay-per-view buys than anticipated. In fact, he said that uh, you did about 30,000 buys in terms of like domestic uh, terrestrial pay-per-view buys and maybe, you know, another 75% for streaming. So you're looking at probably like 120,000 buys perhaps, which is enough to make Anderson Silva and Jake Paul some money, but nowhere near uh, as much as they thought they were going to make or as many buys as they were going to get. And perhaps uh, Showtime, wasn't interested in re-upping on a new new deal with Jake Paul because of that. And so it's possible not only does Jake Paul make the move to MMA and the PFL at the right time, but his hand could have been forced a little bit here. And so he comes over to the PFL. And like we talked about on Friday, I feel like almost everything about Jake Paul's PFL announcement can be summed up with the phrase big if true. Mm-hmm. Like if half the stuff that Jake Paul says in this six or eight minute long introductory video detailing his move to PFL is true, then it could be a pretty big deal because he is he is claiming that the PFL is going to now get into a pay-per-view super fight business, which we had seen uh, the infancy of around Kayla Harrison. But we're led to believe that Jake Paul will be part of that now. Perhaps they will make a move to try to sign uh, some additional free agents and that the revenue from those pay-per-view events will be split split 50% between the promotion and the fighters, which frankly would be a pretty big deal in mixed martial arts where most fighters don't get anywhere near that kind of percentage from the cut of their labor. And so uh, to me, almost the least interesting part of all of this is that Jake Paul will at some point fight in MMA in the PFL. And the most interesting part is, well, Again, big if true, if they're actually paying out this kind of money for people to come fight in this super fight league, will they be able to entice some relatively big name free agents away from the UFC now that contracts over there are structured slightly differently to allow a free agency period? And if so, will that allow the PFL to become a bigger player in the American MMA market? That's kind of the thing that interests me the most. I know that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how Jake Paul will fare as an MMA fighter. But to me, that's honestly kind of an ancillary topic at this point. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things is when you look at it from PFL's perspective, that even if they are looking at somebody who comes off a boxing match in which he, if he only sold 120,000 pay-per-views in a boxing match with Anderson Silva, if you're PFL and you go, Oh, this guy could sell 120,000 pay-per-views? Gimme. <laughs> By all means. Because yeah, fair point. That'd be a huge pay-per-view buy for the PFL. Right. And especially if you're actively trying to make that a big part of your business where you're, and and in order to do it, you realize you need people you don't have yet. That whatever you have right now, it's not going to play on pay-per-view. You need to pick up some other people. And also if you look at what the PFL has managed to do that does get a little bit of a spike in attention. I mean, Kayla Harrison has been a reliable driver of attention for them, but then also um, they sort of ran out of fresh stuff for her to do. And then, of course, as you point out, of course, Kayla Harrison is going to fuck around and lose uh, once you actually try to tell us that it's a, a special big show that she's in. But also one of the things that they managed to do that got them a spike in attention was when they brought Clarissa Shields over. 
And it was like like that classic sort of move where, okay, a boxer is going to come over to MMA and we got her. You're going to get to see how she's doing. And that worked. Like people were people who normally did not pay attention to PFL were paying attention to PFL then. So I do think that you got to make some kind of those moves. There's only so many free agents you're really going to get into the serious conversation about. And some of them are going to be, you know, the kind where basically the UFC figures that they've got all they can get out of that person. Um, increasingly, you're getting some of the people where the UFC might like to have them back, but you can make a better offer for their services. But that you, you do sort of have to look outside the immediate bubble and be like, who is out there where maybe we could get them to bring a little bit of that outside attention to us? Jake Paul really registers as it, and it, and it comes at a time when he needs something like this. Yeah. And another person that registers in that same way is Nate Diaz, who in this video, Jake Paul said he had offered a two-fight deal to where they would fight in boxing and then come over and fight in the PFL in an MMA fight, which again, big if true. If you told me Jake Paul and Nate Diaz were going to have a two-fight series, first in boxing and then MMA, hashtag would watch, would actually watch both of those fights, frankly. Uh, And that's the kind of thing that you could use to stoke a little bit of publicity and interest into the PFL's uh, already pretty polished and presentable format. Uh, Now, Nate Diaz responded to that by tweeting out the Ryzen logo which is one of the more Nate Diaz things he could have done at that moment. So we're, we're not sure at all where, you know, a potential deal between those two guys could stand, but you know, like, like I said on Friday, I don't even really think you have to sell that many pay-per-views under the PFL banner to start making people more money than they're making in the UFC. Like, you know, just to use Francis Ngannou as the example that it was reported, he made about $600,000 for his last title defense. And, you know, you start crunching the numbers, you don't really have to sell many more pay-per-views than like the 120,000 alleged pay-per-views that Anderson Silva and Jake Paul did before uh, you're making considerably more than $600,000. And so if you're just looking at it from a cut and dried financial perspective, uh, it could well make sense for the PFL to become a player in some of these free agent discussions. Now, one of the things that always hampered Bellator, I think was they just didn't really have the money to be in the conversation for a lot of these kind of big name free agents. And the PFL's financial situation is still a little bit of a black hole. They announced last year that they had raised an additional $30 million in venture capital money and said that they had raised a total of $200 million in venture venture capital money. How much of that they have floating around for free agent acquisitions, we don't know. But I don't know, man. You start seeing the PFL pick up some people that we want to watch for its pay-per-view super fight division or whatever they want to call it. Then I think things start to get more interesting. Yeah, it is, though, kind of telling that uh, in all the conversation since we heard this announcement, Jake Paul going over, it seems like one of the things that we're not super getting bogged down in the details of is who we actually going to fight. Because it seems like, okay, somebody like Nate Diaz, because if it's not somebody big like that, then isn't it somebody handpicked? Like, it... Normally, what we would see in a situation like this, somebody comes in and we want to make a big deal like we did with Greg Hardy, where we were just calling people up and being like, could you take a punch and get and fall down? Good. We'll give you 10 and 10. Get over here. And with Jake Paul, it feels like, okay, he's already built up enough of an expectation from boxing where it's like he's sort of built in difficulty of opponent 
that you kind of got to find something for him to do right away. Because if you come in here and it's like Jake Paul versus somebody who fought once and lost on the Contender Series three years ago, everybody's going to be like, what is this bullshit? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Nate Diaz is the perfect opponent if they could swing a deal with him. Uh, just because you could do that kind of two fight series and that could sustain some interest. If you, if you have to start looking outside of him, uh, I'm not sure where you go, but Jake Paul, to his credit has been fairly savvy up to this point. You can read into that word as much as you want in terms of picking who and when and where he will fight. So, uh, we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. But again, uh, I'll watch Jake fight. Jake Paul fight in MMA, but it's kind of like the thing I'm least interested in about this PFL announcement. We'll see if anything else comes of it, I guess. Maybe the advantage of also fighting Nate Diaz in an MMA fight is that you don't have to worry probably too much about him shooting a takedown on you, even though we could. You know, yeah. he probably not well, gonna. Yeah. Even if it would be in his best interests. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, we're back to the actual fighting here, as we mentioned at the top of the show, and it feels a little strange, but we do have UFC Fight Night Imavov versus Gastelum coming up on Saturday from the UFC's Apex down there in Las Vegas. Again, a bit of a low-profile fight night event, but we will spend some time here near the end of the show talking about it a little bit. There's nobody in the UFC who has a recognizable name who needs to win right now more than Kelvin Gastelum. He is one and five in his last six fights. He has lost two in a row during 2021 to Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier. Obviously, when you start talking about the misfortunes, the recent misfortunes of Kelvin Gastelum, Competition is an issue because he has fought some of the best at the middleweight division. Israel Adesanya, Darren Till, Jack Hermanson, Robert Whitaker, and Jared Cannonier are the recent losses. But, you know, with Nasardine Imavov going off at a little bit more than a two-to-one favorite here, this booking as a main event in this fight night, to me, smacks of a potential showcase fight for Nasardine Imavov. Agree or disagree? Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not the fight that you make for Kelvin Gastelum if you're just desperately trying to get him a win. Right. You know, if you're saying like, okay, we know you've been on a tough skid here, buddy. Uh, you've been out here fighting these really tough opponents. Let us get you something a little easier to so help you plant your feet, stop this skid, turn things around. You're not. It's not exactly the kind of fight that feels like you're doing him any favors whatsoever. What it might be instead is the kind of fight that you make if you go, well, we don't know if there's much of a future in Kelvin Gastelum, but if Nasruddin Mimovov wins, we use what's left of Kelvin Gastelum's name to build him up, uh, and if Kelvin does fuck around and win uh, coming in as a slight underdog, well, then he showed some signs of life and he's still in it. I, I, yeah. I think that's the thinking of the matchmakers. Kelvin Gastelum also hasn't fought since August of 2021, so he's had a long layoff here. It's kind of difficult sometimes to predict how guys are going to show up after a layoff like that. He can either look rusty or he can look recharged. So we'll see which which version of Kelvin Gastelum shows up for this fight. On the other hand, Nasardine Imavov has been pretty good 
throughout his UFC career. Uh, he has won them all except for a majority decision loss to Phil Hawes in February of 2021. He is currently riding a three-fight win streak, albeit against slightly lesser competition. Ian Heinish, Edmund Shabazian, and Joaquin Buckley, the most recent victories for Nasruddin Imavov, but again, you know, the Russian sniper, as they call him, going off here as a two-to-one favorite. Yeah, see, if you're a guy maybe getting to the end of it, getting down near the end of the career, and they call you up and they say, hey, brother, uh, we're thinking we might have you come in and fight a guy we like to call the Russian sniper. What do you think about that? I'd be like, "Uh, my knee is, I got a thing. I'm supposed to be on vacation. My wife is pregnant. Uh, I don't think I could make weight. Uh, I can't quite hear you. What's that? You're cutting out. The flip side. And then you hang up and throw the phone out the fucking window. The flip side is that if you are, in fact, a 26-year-old fighter and uh, you're from Dagestan and your your nickname is the Russian Sniper, don't let Vladdy Putin hear that you're out there not dressed up in military fatigues because he could use a Russian Sniper right about now. They're shipping those guys off to Ukraine. It's kind of a tough time to be named the, the Russian Sniper while uh, Russia itself is mired in a war of conquest against one of its neighbors and drafting people. You know what I mean? Eh, he makes his home over in France. I think he's probably good, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, not to make a comparison Putin between... Be, he's nicknamed what? He's where now? Hmm? How, how soon could we get him on a plane? Yeah, I'm sure if Putin has the co-main event podcast on his, on his app right now. Uh, not to make a comparison between Vladimir Putin's war effort and the middleweight top 15, but I guess I will. Uh, you know what else could use some new blood? Some guys, the middleweight top 15. You look yeah. at this thing, especially up near the top. Uh, it is mostly mostly the usual suspects in and around at least the top 10 here. Of course, you got the new champion in Alex Pereira. But after that, I'll just read them off to you. The top, this is the top seven middleweights in the UFC. Israel Adesanya, Robert Whitaker, Jared Cannonier, Marvin Vittori, Derek Brunson, Paulo Costa, and Sean Strickland. So a list of guys who maybe most of them, we kind of feel like we know what we're getting, like we've seen the blueprint and maybe some of them we feel like we have already seen seen the best of what they have to offer so if you were trying to boost a guy like Nazardin Imavov uh, who is right now sitting down there at number 12 maybe you give him uh, a winnable fight against Kelvin Gastelum and if he impresses in it all of a sudden he's bumping up there into the you know 8 to 10 situation 8 to 10 range where he would be right up there with a couple other up and coming guys in uh, Roman Dulidze and DDP then you start to get uh you know, some 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 new blood, some fresh contenders up there at the at the top fifteen level, which would be a good thing for the middleweight division. Yeah, it could use that. I also got to wonder, uh, just when you look at some of the the numbers, how everybody looks, at least according to the media guide, Nasruddin Imovov is six three. Mm-hmm. Kelvin Gastelum, one of the shorter middleweights, at five nine. He, I mean, I know we like to play this game of what about in the alternate universe where he does not shoot a takedown on Israel Adesanya? Does he finish him and still sitting around here with the the middleweight title? But he's a small guy for the weight class, has talked about how he wants to go back down the welterweight at some point, and yet he had so many struggles with the weight there. I don't know if the UFC is willing to take that risk. But then you're coming in here and what looks like, just in terms of the dimensions, kind of a tough matchup and a tough puzzle for you to solve. Yeah, he's going to have about a four and a half inch reach advantage is 
Nasruddin Imavov here, so he could do some stuff. We'll have to we'll have to see if he makes the most of this opportunity that he has, which I do think is kind of set up for him to make a name for himself in what is his first UFC main event. All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, I got to tell you, I have seen a terrifying vision of the future. Oh, no. Because I don't know how much you've been paying attention to what's happening across the aisle in the world of pro wrestling, but uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon up and decided to return to the WWE this past week, and apparently no one could stop him. He just decided to come back, and so it was. He just returned. You know, there are some Dana White echoes somewhere in this Vince McMahon stuff, but that's not really the point I wanted to make here. One of the primary reasons that McMahon is said to be coming back is to help shepherd WWE through a potential sale. Uh, And that's the thing that I found both interesting and terrifying because the rumor that I saw posted online was that if indeed WWE tries to sell, one of the interested suitors might be dun 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 Saudi Arabia. And you know what my first thought was, Ben? My first thought was at some point that is going to happen to the UFC. At some point, Endeavor is going to want to get out. At some point, and maybe that point's not even that far off, they're going to want to unload the UFC and maybe cash in, just like the Fertitas did. And you know who's going to want to buy the UFC? Nobody good. Nobody good. Probably Saudi Arabia or Abu Dhabi, who, if you'll recall, already bought into the UFC once. It's going to be somebody like that. And there's a very real possibility that it's going to be somebody worse than what we've got now or what we had in the past. I'm just saying. You don't think it'll be Amnesty International? (laughs) I don't think the ACLU is ponying up the dough to buy the UFC. See, I thought you were going to say that one of the potential suitors was said to be Endeavor itself. Which made me wonder, could anybody even handle that under one roof? A Dana White-led UFC and a Vince McMahon-led WWE owned by the same parent company. Can you imagine the fucking conference calls? There would be a 100% chance that Dana and Vince would be a tag team that headlined WrestleMania the next year, probably beating whatever up-and-coming tag team had the belts. Yeah. Well, Chad, I'm just saying that according to Twitter today, I learned that Donald Cerrone and his wife welcomed in a new member of their family, their son, Havoc Cerrone. Hey, Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov, indeed. Now, if I understand the situation correctly, Donald Cerrone and his wife, Lindsay, now have three sons, Havoc uh, who uh, I believe was just born, and then uh, the oldest, Dax and Danger Cerrone, and then the middle child, Riot River Cerrone. So I guess I'm just saying, I seem to recall when Greg Jackson's wife told me once about her theory about MMA fighters and their names. 
that there were a lot of people with nerdy names and it made them become fighters as they were forced to constantly be on the, the defensive and the back foot and, and had to learn to fight when they were named things like, and here she cited as an example, Donald. And then you have a fellow then who goes the exact opposite way with his own children. Dax and Danger, Riot River, Havoc. And yet, I wonder if maybe you're going to flip it around and accidentally do something that you don't know what the consequence is going to be. I mean, are we looking at Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Havoc Cerrone? <laughs> you think you're, you're, you're making yourself a, bunch, a family of MMA fighters and professional bull riders, and instead, if it pleases the court, Havoc Cerrone has filed an amicus brief. I'm just saying, you don't know yeah. how this shit is going to turn out. Just yeah. saying. I just like to imagine all the, the the normie families on vacation at the ski lodge sitting across the, the communal table and being like, hey, what's uh, I'm Phil and Kathy and we're from Iowa. What are you guys like? Well, I'm cowboy. This is a uh, danger. This is riot. And down here, this little fellow's havoc getting him out on the slopes for the first time. And they're just like, cool. Well, we got to go. Uh, it was nice talking to you. I'll tell you what, I feel like at least one thing they got going for him is he's not going to have to be one of these kids in second grade where he's one of three Havocs in the classroom. He's not going to have to be Havoc C. <laughs> Everybody going to know there's, there's just one Havoc in the class. I feel bad for the teachers and the principal of whatever school all three Cerrone boys show up oh, at. Yeah, they're going to be and in the teacher's lounge. For like the other you, students. You you got Riot River this year? Oh, yeah, I... I had Dax in danger last year. It's going to be a long year. I'm telling you that. You're in for a ride. (laughs) That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Those of you who are $20 patrons of the podcast can look forward to after hours coming up right now. As for the rest of you, we'll either see you over at the Patreon page this week or join us back right here again next week for another episode of The Proper. We're going to talk about Habib Nurmagomedov maybe getting out the game again, again coming up right now as for the rest of you thanks for listening we are done we are through we are out so ben habib Nurmagomedov just loves retiring from stuff from what i can tell <laughs> retired as a fighter you know a couple years ago he, he was ariel Hawani's pick for coach of the year this year in mma he had a lot of success as a an mma coach and now uh, he says he's retiring from that as well to go spend time with his family. And could it be that Khabib Nurmagomedov is actually just such a legitimate family?